And I tried to get done as fast as I could, so I did my master's uh, in a year and a half. And so I took a super heavy load just to try and get it out of my get it out of my way. And I knew it was that God had opened the doors, and um, He wanted me to 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 go through that. And I wanted just a degree in theology, but I couldn't get through in a year and a half. It would take me, you know, a couple of years at least because they stagger classes. And so I wanted to get through that time frame, so I had to diversify, and that's why it's in, uh, in his, church history and philosophy. And it was really good because I didn't understand theology correctly apart from church history. And so the whole aspect of being immersed in church history just really helped me to understand theology much, much better. And so research papers that I had to do, I did uh, three in three particular areas, I did research papers, and uh, the first area I did it in was in the early church, the first two, three hundred years of the early church, and I wrote an extensive uh, paper on Justin Martyr, which was the church's first uh, apologist, and apologist is a uh, branch of theology that is for the defense of the faith. And uh, the second area of, of research that I did was in the Great Reformation. And I concentrated on Martin Luther. And I read tons and tons of books by Martin Luther and, and people uh, uh, that wrote on him and, and that. And then the third area that I did research on was the early uh, Pentecostal movement, the modern Pentecostal movement, and looked at its traces, how it came into existence, and all the dynamics that brought about the Azusa Street Revival and what, what came out of that and the tremendous power that was in the church uh, through that early Pentecostal movement. Um, it was a long time ago. I can't remember how long ago it was, but we came across the movie. And I usually rarely will ever bring up a movie and, and that there. But this is a really good movie if you can get your hands on it. It's called Luther. That's just the name of it, Luther. And it was done, or funded at least, by the Lutheran Church. And the reason why I say that, because I did so much research on Luther, I know the life of Luther. I know what was there. I know, you know, I've seen some other Luther movies that are just, you know, okay, but they really strove to be historically accurate with that. And so I was really impressed with it, and the acting was really good, not hokey like a lot of uh, at least older uh, Christian movies were. And so it's very accurate. But they put a few things in that I don't necessarily have from all my knowledge of it that was necessarily true. And in one scene in there, what happens is Luther, who is going to be an attorney, he was going to be a lawyer, uh, he uh, ends up literally, and it is historical, that he was on his way through the country and he almost got hit with a bolt of lightning and he's on his face crying out, says, I'll be a monk, I'll be a monk, I'll be a monk. And because his only idea was if you're going to be a, a God-fearing person, well, if you really want to do it, you've got to be a monk. So he became a monk, but yet he had come to the place to see only God as a hateful being, as this vengeful God that, you know, you could never please and never love because he was just, you know, always angry with you. And so that was his whole concept, even as a monk. And one day his, his, uh, his spiritual father comes into his room, into his little cell that he had, and he's agonizing over the aspect of how terrible a person that he is because he saw the reality that he was a sinner but saw no hope out of it, saw no remedy to it. And so his spiritual father comes to him and hands him a cross and quotes this verse right here. Told him, says, say it, I am yours, save me. I am yours, save me. And to me, it was a very powerful scene in the movie because it just showed the reality that, that he had to come to grips with the knowledge that if he was going to be a true follower of Jesus, that he had to understand what it means to belong to God, what it is to be his, and to cry in the midst of our struggles and the pains and the challenges and the hardships that we cry for him to save us. And so we are saved when we become a Christian. We are saved. But He is saving us. He's in the process of saving us until we die. And then when we die, and we die in Christ, we are saved forever. Our salvation is finished and complete. So you have that three expressions of it in Scripture that literally speaks of it past, present, and future. And so this is a present situation, not a past situation of I was saved, which I was saved, but here is the God that is saving me now, in the process of saving me, 
saving all of us. I don't care how long you've been in the faith. If you are truly in the faith, you are in the process of being saved. That is part of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So in this short, simple little verse, there's three thoughts that are presented there. I am yours, that speaks of the relationship. Save me, that is the cry for his salvation and, and, and preservation in this world. And our obligation, which is I have sought your precepts. And so we're going to look at these, these three categories here, these three ideas that are presented. And so let's begin with the relationship. And, you know, even among the, the uh, men last Wednesday, I forget what brought the question up or whatever, but I just happened to mention in it about the aspect that everything is about the relationship. And that's what it is. All of Christianity, biblical Christianity, is all about the relationship with God. And if we remove the relationship, remove everything of what Christianity is all about, what the cross was all about, so that we could be purchased to become His, so that we could belong to Him, so we could enjoy the reality of who this God is as He manifests Himself to us in greater ways through that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And so I am yours. And, you know, this is something that I can say very easily, and I know I'm a Christian. I know I belong to Him. I don't question my salvation. I can't remember if I ever really ever questioned my salvation. But there are some here that you probably question your salvation a lot. That you're in the place of always wondering, well, when am I really right with God? Is He, is he pleased with me? And well, I've struggled over the aspect of whether I'm pleasing to Him at times because I've not always been a good son. But yet I've known, even in those, in those situations of not being what I should be, that I still belonged to Him, that it was still His. And so that phrase, I am yours, is a statement that I am yours by creation. So it begins in creation. God created all of mankind. So in that sense, God owns everything and everyone. Doesn't mean that everyone has given their life to Christ because only those who are true followers of Jesus have. But he owns all of them. It's just the mass of humanity is in rebellion against that ownership over him. We're told in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's a tremendous amount of truth in those, in those couple verses there. But all things were created by him and for him. For his good pleasure. That means the stars were created for his good pleasure. That this earth was created for his good pleasure. That mankind was created for his good pleasure. That the animals and the trees and all that is, he created for his good pleasure. That he could look at it. When you look at the, at, uh, the creation story in Genesis 1, at the end of each day, it says that God, that he uses this word in Hebrew, tov, that, which means he's well pleased, that he created exactly what he wanted. So at the end of each day, he says, I am well pleased with what I have done. I created exactly the way I wanted it to be created. And that was even on the sixth day when he created Adam and Eve, when he created mankind. He was pleased with his creation. He was pleased with what he had done. He was pleased with what came out of them. But then came the rebellion, right? He still created us for the same purpose. That creation purpose did not change. He created us to bring joy to him. And we can only be the people that we are to be when we live to bring pleasure to him. And that is an alien thought in our, in our fallen world, in our American culture, because we live to bring pleasure to ourselves. And we fail to understand that in the pursuit of pleasure for ourselves, we don't really bring pleasure to ourselves because we end up missing it, because we actually rob ourselves of what brings true pleasure. It is in the pursuit of God that we find pleasure and that he gives everything its right place that gives right pleasure to us. And so here you have the idea, I am yours because of creation. I am yours by redemption. So it's not just that he owns us by creation. He owns us by the cross. He purchased us. We'll look at that in just a moment. But by redemption, a beautiful verse in Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 16. And I share this verse occasionally because it's so beautiful. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Hasn't a lot of people said that? 
Can a mother forget the baby at her breasts and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now there are some theologians that try and say, well, that was just some, some uh, tattoo that was on the palms of their hands. It wasn't no tattoo, I guarantee you. It's all prophetic about what Jesus did on the cross. This is how much I've loved you. I own you as creator. I own you as redeemer. I paid the price so that you could be mine. Because I've loved you with an everlasting love. And that everlasting love does not mean that people will not go to hell. It just means those people that go to hell, God did love. But they refused to acknowledge His love and walk in that love and live in that love. So they were separated from Him forever. And we have no idea of the breaking of God's heart in that. No idea. Because the breaking of God's heart in that will be forever. Because He will know forever those that He created to be His And they said no to him. We are his by the aspect he purchased us. We have no way of comprehending this. We can look at it in Scripture. We can look at the story of of Calvary. We can see all that. We can try and understand. We can see the most, most beautiful movie on the death of Christ and the life of Christ and put that all together and weep over it and still not even hardly understand anything of what really went on. I've only been a human all my life. So I have no idea what it is for God to become human. I cannot relate what it is to be so infinitely high, to condescend so low, I mean so low, we don't comprehend how low He came down to become human. But He condescended in that way to come among mankind, the people that he, he, he owned by right of creation and he owned, which he will because of the timeless nature of, the, of Calvary, that he owns by the cross. So he came to empty himself, to become human, to purchase us, to pay the price of our salvation. And you know, he never had to do it. He already owned us. But we were in rebellion and because... Mankind, for some reason that I can't even fathom, that we are the apple of his eye. And I believe that's because we are made in his image. The only beings that are made in his image. Angels are not made in his image. Men and women, when they die, they don't become angels. That is a lie. I don't know how that's ever been believed. They never become angels because angels are not made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. We will be forever in the image of God. And that image allows us a unique kind of fellowship that no other being will ever have. I don't know what that means. I don't understand how that works. But He purchased us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23, You are bought at a price. Do not become the slaves of men. You are bought at a price. The precious reality of who you are so that you could be His. Though He owned you already, though that you could be His through His work of redemption. He purchased you. So don't be the slaves of men. Don't be enslaved to the fear of man. Don't be enslaved to the, to the conditions of man. But be ruled by the law of God, by the precepts of God as we will see in a little bit. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 Here's here's a song in heaven. This is what they're singing. The redeemed are singing in heaven. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He purchased us. So the price he paid to become human is beyond anything we can fathom. Now add to that what he suffered. We have no way of comprehending the value He has placed upon us because we have no way of understanding Calvary. No way of really comprehending. We can look at it, we can theologically say the truths and that there, but to get our mind around what He did for us is so beyond human ability to comprehend. Angels longed to look in those things and they could not themselves understand what it was that God was doing for these people that were created in His image but rebelled against Him. I am yours by adoption. This to me is astounding. And, you know, it just takes the whole thing of that He owns us by right as Creator. He owns us as right as Redeemer. 
But then he did something more. And I remember as a young man, strung out on drugs, a partier, that's all I lived for. I lived to party. That's all I wanted in life. I had no agenda. I had no desire to ever work in my life. I wanted to be high 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That was the purpose of life. And this God broke in my world. What really drew me to Christ was this loneliness that ate at my soul that I couldn't understand. Nothing could meet the need in my life. Nothing. And then in a park where I partied and dealt drugs, this God broke in my world. And in a moment, I was transformed. And what I remember, I couldn't even put it in words, but now I can. In a moment, I belonged. I was His. And even at that moment, I couldn't have told you I couldn't have processed it. I didn't have scripture. I didn't have any point of reference. I didn't have any Christian upbringing. I didn't know anything about it. But when I look back and I read verses like Philippians chapter 3, and then you start understanding a little bit of what it is to belong to Him, that I am yours. You see, the law of nature obligates a father to be good to his son, even if he's not a good father, right? It's something inside of men, right? To be good to their children. And for those who violate that idea, they are doing violence not just to the child. They are doing violence to themselves. And so they fail to understand that every man out there that's created babies and never been a father to him, he has done violence to himself, not just the child, not just the mother. He's done violence to himself because it's a violation of what God created him to be. And it affects people more than they understand. And it puts them at odds with God's in, in tremendous ways. By the law of nature, fathers take care of their sons. A father will put himself in harm's way to save a son. If a son is drowning in the water, the father will, will plunge himself in those icy waters if need be to rescue the son. Because that is the heart of a father. God is the perfect father. But he's, the only, he's only a true father to those who are his by adoption. I mean, you can say in a general sense, is God the creator? He's the father of all. And I know all the ridiculous statements that people say that don't have a biblical base with that. But he is the father of those who have been truly born again. And then he treats them like a father. He disciplines us like a father. He cares about us like a father. Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Years and years ago, when I was pastoring in the streets of Detroit, I know I've probably shared this before, but um, I can't even remember where I read it but some book I was reading, and it brought out a quote by Mrs. William Booth. And basically what she says, she says, do not ever tell a person they're a Christian. Because if you tell a person they're a Christian, you may be fighting against the Holy Spirit, because if the Holy Spirit hasn't told them they're a Christian, for you to tell them that they're a Christian, you may keep them on a path to hell. I think that's very serious. I was recently at a church, um, and you know they're trying to do this evangelism thing I disagree with. I don't want to get into the whole thing. But I disagree with it where, you know, basically they go up to, uh, they knock on doors, they have a little card, they read a little card to the people, and then they have them pray a little prayer, and then they come back and they say, well, we saw 15 people saved. Well, that was a lie. They didn't see anybody saved. You know, but they got them to pray a little prayer. So now, oh, they must be saved. Well, what they've done is they've done more damage because they're going out, they're telling people they're a Christian when they're not a Christian, and they're still in fornication, still in drunkenness, still in all the sins that they're doing. But now they say, well, I prayed the prayer. I got the key to, you know, I got my get-out-of-hell car free. The Spirit testifies that we are children. I knew on that day when I surrendered my life to Christ that there was a radical change. There again, I couldn't have told you Scripture. I couldn't have went and, and laid it all out. I had no idea, but I knew all of a sudden I was no longer the saved man. I belonged to Him, though I didn't even understand what that meant. The Spirit testifies to the reality that we are the children of God. And we have to allow the Spirit of God to speak in the lives of people. And God knows how to communicate the truth that we belong to Him. 
He knows how to communicate that, even in hard hearts or, or, or ignorance or whatever it is. He knows how to communicate that to us. And so when people aren't understanding it, either they haven't been truly saved or they are letting unbelief keep them from the joy of just knowing they belong to Jesus. You know, there is tremendous joy in that. To know I am His. I belong to Him. Tremendous joy in that. Tremendous peace in the reality that I belong to this God that has loved me so much that He paid such a price for my salvation. I am yours by covenant. You know, you want to you look at something that's a, a tough subject, interesting, really challenging, but yet very beautiful. Look at covenant in Scripture. Covenant. There's all kinds of covenants. You have unconditional covenants, such as the one that, that God made to Noah. says, I'll never destroy the earth again by a flood. Man had nothing to do with that. God made the covenant. I will uphold this because I have said. But then you have covenant after covenant after covenant that are conditional covenants. That says, I will do this if you do that. And you have this one that's called the Susan Vassal Covenant. Very beautiful. I mean, it's all over the Old Testament and in so many ways. I mean, you even have it with Abraham when he walks between the... the, the, the animal that was cut in two and he walked between it as this flaming pot and you know it's just this it was an Abrahamic covenant it was a it was this suzerain vassal covenant a suzerain is a conqueror a vassal is a conquered person and we come to the place where we are finally conquered by God because we bow to him we stop the rebellion and what does this God do he enters into covenant with us what does that mean he binds us to himself binds us to the promises that he gives. This God who needs nobody binds himself to us. And that is just absolutely radical, that God would bind himself to us. And covenant is serious stuff in Scripture. Very, very serious. That's why backsliding is more serious than people comprehend, because it's severing the covenant. It's breaking the covenant. And when we break that covenant, we break fellowship with God. And it is a terrible thing to fall in that place of a backslidden life, a backslidden heart, where we have broke covenant with God because He bound Himself to us. And then we say, that is not enough. I want to go back and live the way that I lived before. Backsliding is a horrendous evil. And we don't comprehend that as well. Jesus seated with the disciples around the table. It's just hours before He's going to be crucified. And he says in one of the Gospels, I can't remember which one, he says, I have vehemently desired to share this with you. Because what he was going to do is he was going to take the Passover and transform it. The prophetic purpose of the Passover was to point to Jesus. All those years they could not comprehend that it had a prophetic significance. The Jews today that are not enlightened and in that place of fellowship with, with Christ, they do not comprehend the Passover as well. They have failed to understand that the Passover lamb had to come to die for them. And so he takes this Passover meal and he changes it. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the covenant. I'm taking what is the old covenant. I'm bringing a new covenant in. This new covenant is as binding or more so binding than what the old covenant was because this is now a covenant that will give you life. The commitment we are to have should be wholehearted, absolute when we look at what this God has done for us. Not just us being created by Him and Him owning us as Creator or by being redeemed by Him or purchased by Him, but He entered into covenant with us bound Himself to us that we might be bound to Him and obtain the benefits, the blessings that come out of covenant fellowship with God. This is the whole idea that's presented in the Bride of Christ. This New Testament picture of the Bride. Covenant. Marriage is all about covenant. So we again, there again, we don't understand the violence that is done to a man and woman when they enter into covenant and then break that covenant through divorce. It does violence. It does violence spiritually. It does violence to them morally, mentally, emotionally. It is a violent act. It's not just the idea to say, well, we don't love each other anymore, so we're going opposite directions. You are ripping each other apart. You're tearing each other apart, and that's what it does. It is more ugly and evil than what people comprehend. 
But because it's become acceptable in our culture doesn't mean God has accepted it. It is still what it is. It's an act of violence. It's a covenant that is being torn apart. Can God save people that have been divorced? Absolutely. God saves. Thank you for His mercy. Thank you for God that purchased us and His blood is greater than our, our sins against Him. But we still have to understand what marriage is, what that act of violence is of divorce, and understand the tremendous thing that God would say, I am coming for my bride, a bride without spot or wrinkle, a bride without blemish upon her. And Jesus is coming back for a beautiful bride. The world is going to get crazier. There's going to be more and more of a separation between what is the true church and the visible church that is, a, is not the true church. There'll be that separation. He will come for a beautiful bride. It may not be as big as we thought, but He's going to come for a beautiful bride. He has promised it. He is in the purifying process of that work even now because He's wanting to come. And I believe it's in our time. I mean, the, I won't get off into that. But <laughs> Now there's another dimension of this. I am yours because I've given myself to you. You see, we aren't His because He made the choice irregardless of what we say. We have part in this. And we'll see that more as we get into the precepts. We have part in this. But here you have the situation where He says, I am yours because I gave myself to you and you accepted me. You accepted my offering. You accepted this. You went and took this, this wicked, evil offering that was defiled by sin and you cleanse it with your blood, you made it pure and holy that it could be offered up in a way that is pleasing and acceptable to you. This whole idea of salvation is radical. That He would take vile people like us, cleanse us, and cleanse us so perfectly that He would make us a holy temple where He dwells. It's radical. You take some time and you think about that, that God would come inside of you, and He's holy, and what it means for a holy God to dwell in us. It's radical that this God would do that. And it should be very humbling to us that He would give us such a great gift. And so I know a while back, you, Pastor Jeff was teaching on Romans 12. And so verses 1 and 2, beautiful description of what the Christian life is all about. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship or your reasonable service, according to the King James Version. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so what is this? The giving up of ourselves to Him. I am yours because I surrendered. I said yes. Did God give me the grace to do that? Absolutely. But I had to have the choice. I had to make the choice. Did He convince me? He can do some great convincing. But He will not make the choice for me. He has given us a free will, and we must make that choice. Where He says, I choose to follow. And then we have to go, and when we sing songs like the one we sung, I'm desperate for you, this is the air I breathe, but that, that point... I'm desperate for you. I can never, ever, ever sing that without first saying, God, I'm nowhere near that. Somehow get me there. Those are songs we sing not because we are living it out, but because it's the declaration of what we want to live out, what we are seeking to live out, because we cannot. If you are living that out, then you're, an aim, then you're a redeemed individual that's visiting this, uh, this church this morning from heaven, and I'd like to touch you afterwards. I am yours, no longer my own. You understand, when I became that living sacrifice, when I went and took my life and put it on that altar and said, consume me with thine enveloping fire, I put myself on that, on that altar. I was no longer my own. I gave up my rights. I gave up my will. Or let's say I was supposed to. Here's where we have a lot of problems as Christians where we don't give up our rights. We don't give up our will. We still claim our rights. We still claim what we want and desire and, and that God has to bless us with or whatever, however we look at that. But I'm not my own anymore. I gave myself up to Him. He purchased me with His own blood. He owns me as Creator. But yet He woos me for my heart. 
woos me for my will. That's astounding. That this God would would woo me, would, would deal with me, that I might give up my will and my heart to Him when He has the right to it all anyway, but we were rebels against Him. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, there's all kinds of ways we could go in that. I'm not going to go into, into the ways, but I'll tell you what. Every part of our body needs to be honoring Him and glorify Him. Every part of our body. No part of it should be given to idolatry or into a pleasure that is incorrect. Now, God does give us right pleasure, so long as it's rightly used. I mean, I think most of us are going to go after service and we're going to eat somewhere. Some of you that are fathers are going to have your children cook something for you or take you out to eat and you will get a food that you like. You'll buy something that you like, not something you hate. And God doesn't have a problem with us being able to enjoy the good things that He's given us in a right way when it comes under His rule. That is gifts that He has given us. Yet even in all those things, I'm not my own. Because what does he do then? He says to his disciples, he says, when you fast. He says, there's times I'm going to call you to fast. That you are to deny your taste buds the pleasure of the food you want to eat. Why? Because you need to seek my face or a particular thing, for a particular need in your life, or the needs of others. I'm calling you to something more. You are not your own, not even in what you eat. Everything must be done for the glory of God and the purpose of his fame. Everything. I am yours, and I'm no longer the world's. I'll tell you what, church, we really need to understand this. Because we're not going to understand this one unless we begin to understand all the other ones I've shared thus far. I'm not the world's. I don't have to dress like the world. I don't have to act like the world. I don't have to have the ambitions of the world. I don't have to think what the world thinks and act like the world acts. I am called to be something radically different. I am called to be like Jesus, not like the world. And so everything in me must be moving in a whole different direction. And if I look like the world, act like the world, talk like the world, then I should be looking in the mirror and saying, God, what's wrong with me? Because something is very wrong then. Because I am now wanting to emulate the world. I am now thinking that there's something important that the world has that I need to be like. And so I try to copy the world in a particular way, whether it's how I dress or what I do or whatever it may be. We have to go to work. We have to pay the bills. That's right. But our ambitions must be very, very different from the world. You see, He wants to get into every part of our life so that it's defined by what He has done for us as Creator, as Redeemer, as the one who purchased us, as the one who owns us because we've given ourselves to Him. If you belong to the world... It would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And you know, if the world doesn't hate us, that means we must belong to it. Very disturbing thought with that. John brings that out in his epistle. Very disturbing thought. If the world accepts us and thinks everything's okay, then there's something wrong that, that somehow the Spirit of God in us is not being so free, so manifested in the life we live, in, the, in, in what flows through us, that it's not bringing offense to those who are God-haters. I don't want persecution. But Paul says, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted. Now, I don't want to put that on my refrigerator as one of the verses I claim, right? Oh, God, let me be persecuted. But, you know, nonetheless, it's something that if we are living like we should, our life should be an offense to some. Now, if you're obnoxious, that's a whole other thing, and you just need a character change. God's not out to make you obnoxious, but He's out to conform you to His image, that you become like Jesus in every situation. Before I move on to the next point, I am yours, and I'm no longer a child of hell. I'm no longer a child of hell. And you know, that is some really, really good news. I don't have to get what my sins rightly and justly deserve. I have been given mercy. I have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. I have been bought. I belong to Him. And so I am no longer 
the slave to hell. I am no longer subject to him. I do not have to listen to him. I do not have to obey him. I don't have to follow his precepts and, and all the other things that's, that's defined by hell. I am a new creature in Christ now. So now you have that second part. He says, I am yours. And so he says, I am yours. All these reasons behind it. Why, I, why am I yours? I am yours. And now he gives, gives the reason why he's declaring I'm yours. And he says, save me. Well, save me from what? He doesn't bring description here to what that is. That's not what's in this, the purpose of this psalm. And so when he wrote this, whoever wrote it, some say David and some say others. And it really doesn't matter for our purposes here. But the psalmist went and said, save me, because there was something going on in his life that he felt, God, I need your salvation working in me. I am saved from hell, okay? I am saved from, from eternal separation from God. But I need his work of salvation in my life on a constant basis to deal with the struggles, to deal with the pain, to deal with the attacks from hell, to deal with all these issues. I need his salvation working in my life. And sometimes we are not saved from things because we don't really want to be saved from certain things. Do you understand what I'm saying there? We allow things in our life that God doesn't want in our life because we've not invited Him in to save us from them. Save me from myself. Save me from bitterness. Save me from anger. Save me from this thing. So we don't cry out to Him for that salvation to redeem us in those areas because we've not asked Him to. We've not invited Him or we made such generic prayers that we've never really wanted Him into those places in our life. So he says, save me because I'm your child. Save me because I'm your child. God, you see what's going, going on in my life. Save me. You are this good father that will throw yourself into that cold water to rescue me. You will put your own life, in essence, at risk to rescue me. So there's this passion that God has to save his children. Now the problem is we've got to understand what that, uh, what that means. Sometimes when we want God saving us, we want him to rescue us from the pain, from the struggle. And God isn't necessarily going to rescue us from the pain or the struggle. Because He may want us to go through the pain and struggle. It may be part of the sanctifying work. So He will save us in the midst of it, not necessarily out of it. We have the idea that God is out to give us a happy life. He's not necessarily out to give us a happy life. He's out to make us more like Him, that we could be sons and daughters that are without spot or wrinkle ready for His return. So He's laboring to that end. So I've got to understand... What his salvation is about. The wonder of this God is that he's not going to necessarily rescue me out of the pain, but he will walk with me through that pain. That is astounding. That is astounding. How many times have we, in all honesty, just wished God made all the pain, all the hurts just go away? Right? I think we all have done it. We all have done it. But, you know, if he always did that, we would just be a bunch of wimps, wimpier than what we already are. Right? So he wants to grow us up. He wants to make us men and women, men and women of God that can stand. Because if things get crazier in this world, understand the need to stand is going to become even that much more. And because persecution goes on doesn't mean he's going to rescue us from persecution. Some people came out of persecution. Others died in the midst of it. Both were absolutely victorious if they were faithful. And so save me, because I'm your child. Save me, because I cannot save myself. We don't go to God and say, save me, until we understand we cannot save ourselves. As long as you think there are areas in your life you can save yourself from, you will not go to God and ask Him to save you. Until you see the reality that your bitterness or anger or lust or whatever it is, is something beyond your ability to overcome, you'll not truly cry out for God. To save you. And you'll not cry out for him to save you until you are so convinced that you really need saving from this. You know, if you think the problem is just a little boo-boo, then all you need is God to put a little little, little uh, Mickey Mouse band-aid on you and you'll be all happy again. And you fail to understand that what you have is cancer that's eating your life out. Until you understand the reality, you're not going to go and say, save me. Save me. Because this is a passionate plea. This isn't some some lackadaisical, apathetic cry, oh yeah, save me if you get time and if it's okay and if you don't mind. You know, this is the cry that says, God, I need saving. I need saving in this. So what is it in your character that you need God to save you from? In your character, not your spouse's, 
in your character. And until it becomes that serious to you that you begin to say, God, save me from this, save me from this, it's going to still be there. And it'll be there five years from now, ten years from now, because you'll not be serious enough to really say, God, I need to overcome this. I can't overcome this myself. Save me. Save me. Romans chapter 7, verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What a statement. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from me? Who will deliver me from my own sinfulness, from my own fallen character? Who will deliver me from it? And until I cry out, I can't say the next part, but thanks be unto Jesus Christ. Right? Because He's the one. He's the only one that can do it. Save me because my enemies seek to destroy me. We have a hater of our soul. I mean, the enemy of our soul is real. He's not make-believe. It's not just some, some fictitious character. It is the reality of a fallen angel with fallen demons that are out to destroy mankind and specifically out to try and take back those that belong to Jesus, take them back into His kingdom. He is there in real ways in the arguments in our minds and the struggles that we go through in trying to feed our flesh. And if we don't understand the enemies that seek to destroy us, we will not really cry out, save me. Because where's the enemy going to use? What's he going to use against us? Our own weaknesses. Every man is drawn away when he is enticed. Right? That's what James taught in his book. It's of our own lust, of our own things inside of us that the devil uses, that the temptation comes after. The devil is not going to tempt me to eat, eat Brussels sprouts. I hate Brussels sprouts. Right? Nor asparagus. It won't come on my plate. What does he do? He tempts us what we like. What can tantalize us. What we want. What can feed the flesh. Those are the things that he goes after. And if Christians don't say that they have those things, they're not human or they're in some serious denial of the reality that's inside of their own bosom. David cried out in Psalms 25, See how my enemies have increased and how they have fiercely hated me? Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. I take refuge in you. You are the one who saves me. My enemies are great. I cannot conquer them. This brings us to the next point. He says, save me because it's not just that my enemies seek to destroy me but I have no power. Save me because I have no power to save myself. I don't have the power. A great army was coming against Jehoshaphat from Edom. This is in Second Chronicles chapter 20. This army was greater than the army of Judah. Judah could not stand against them. Had no ability. He saw the reality. He didn't deny himself and say, oh, we can do it. We can muster it. He saw the truth that he was helpless to save himself, his nation. And so what did he do? He cried out to God. Called a fast, brought the people together. And this is part of his prayer. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. Well, he didn't know what to do as far as sending out an army or anything else like that. He knew what to do, though, what was really needed. He knew what to do to fix his eyes on Jesus. He knew what to do. He knew where his help came from. Right? That's the expression of it. And we have a terrible time with seeing our neediness. Especially men. I mean, women have it just as, have it just as much, but we men have a terrible time. That male ego that just gets in the way where we don't want to give up the control. We still want to be the boss. We still want to rule the roost. And we still think we can do it. And we fail to understand how helpless we are. And our victory doesn't come because we have strength or wisdom or any of that. It comes because we know the one who has all power. We belong to him. We belong to him. And as a good father, he will come and he will rescue us. Those who can say, I am yours, need fear no evil for God saves. This is a faith, faith issue. You understand what I just said there? This is a faith issue. 
Those of you who struggle with fear, you struggle with fear because you don't have faith. You don't believe that God is who he says he is, that God will do what he said he'll do. You have fear because you let other things in your life than the truth of God's word. And so if I can say I am yours, then I have no need to fear my enemies. I don't need to fear any trial. I don't need to fear any temptation, no danger, no affliction, no persecution. Whatever I go through, I can say, I am yours, save me. And I do not fear those things because you are greater than all of those and you will bring me through to the end because that is who you are and that is what you have promised and you have entered into covenant with me. I am your covenant child adopted by you. And so what are we called to do? Rest. And you know that rest that's spoken of in the book of Hebrews is an expression of faith. That's really, really powerful faith, really mature faith, where we rest, we cease fighting, we cease, we enter into the Sabbath rest, where we just rest in God because we know He's going to bring us through all the way to the end, that whatever I'm facing, He is going to be my God in the midst of it. He will never let me face anything alone. And you know, that was the thing before I ever became a Christian. The times I struggled, the hurts I went through with a a, 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 a uh, seriously dysfunctional families and the biblical word for dysfunctional is sinful okay so a seriously sinful family and all of a sudden when I belonged to him there was a rest that came there was a rest now of course he wants that to grow up as we face more and more in life a rest where we just learn to trust him because he is faithful to what he has said to what he has promised those who can say, I am yours, need to fear no evil because God saves. Fear doesn't need to be a part of us about what's going on in our world. I mean, you know, if you read the news too much, you're going to get angry or fearful. You know, we need to know what's going on in the world enough. But man, you get too immersed in it, and you're going to be, there's all kinds of junk going to come into you because you're taking in the news of this world, whether it's true or false, I don't know. The majority of you don't even know where truth is coming from anymore. I can go to the Word of God and know I'll get truth. But you see, I don't need to fear what's going to come, on, come, come into this world, whether it's persecution, whether our nation falls into total communism, where it's rushing towards, whether we have atomic bombs dropped on our nation, whatever, I don't need to fear. Because no matter what I go through, this God is going to be there with, through the midst of it all. Is it going to be hard? Yeah, there'll be some stuff that's hard. I can't imagine what it would be to be a Christian in, uh, in the Ukraine. I can't imagine what it would be like to go through some of the things that would be there. A Christian in Russia, or a Christian in Iran, or Iraq, or any of those nations like that. I can't imagine what it would be like. It would be hard. But God promised that He would be there. Whether in persecution, whether in suffering, that He would be there. We don't need to fear. And so what do we have to deal with? The unbelief that we have that creates fear in us. We have to deal with it. And we have to become very focused on it. We have to go says, God, I am yours. Save me from this fear. Right? Isn't that one of the things? We just go, I am yours. Save me. Save me from what? Save me from the fear that's gripped me. Fear of tomorrow. Fear of this happening. Fear of that thing. Fear of my children. Whatever. Save me. And we begin to actually deal with the issues in our life. Beautiful verse. It's in Malachi chapter 3, verse 18. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. God wants to make such a distinction in His people that they stand out in the world, they stand out in the church, they stand out in society because they belong to Him. And the mark of His character is coming upon them. And it is seen. It becomes evident to people. We need that to become more and more real in our life. That the mark of Christ's character is in us. Defining us. Defining our families. Defining how we do everything. How we work. How we pay our bills. How we do our taxes. That it defines everything. Because there's that distinction that God is making. And this is all part of it right here. The final point is that I have sought your precepts. A precept is a command, a rule, moral or spiritual, of our moral and spiritual conduct. It's what we are to do. It's 
In Hebrew, it's a mandate from God. And collectively, it's referred many times as the Mosaic Law, living out the Mosaic Law. So we hold your precepts, which is in this would probably be looking to the Mosaic Law, which would be the moral and the ceremonial laws that would be there. But really for us, it's the precepts that is there of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to walk in fellowship with Him, what it means to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, if we can't say, I am yours, then we certainly can say, I have sought your precepts. If I say, I am yours, I can only say, I am yours, because I am truly seeking to live out your precepts. You understand? I can't be His and not live out His precepts. You can't divorce the two. If you're going to be His, then you have to begin to learn how to live out the Word of God, the promises of God. You've got to begin to claim them as your own. You've got to want to say, God, I want this to define my life. Because evidence of those that truly belong to Jesus is going to be seen in the mark of a Christ-like character. Always. Always. Now, I'm not going to say we're not in different places in, in our journey in, this, in, in pursuing Christ. But every single one of us, as we mature in Christ, we're going to look more and more like Jesus. We're going to act more and more like Jesus. Our spouse will see a little more Jesus in us as time goes on because we're starting to deal with the realities because we're going to Him and say, save me from this God, save me from that God. I mean, not going to your, your spouse and say, God, save my wife, get her right. You know, like, Save me, God, from me. Save me from these things. So proof we belong to Jesus is that we are seeking His precepts. That we are hungering for His Word. Hungering for it. How much do you read the Word of God? How much do you study it? Are you hungering for it? Do you want truth? Are you weary of the lies that define our culture? And you know, it used to be this just lying. People lying was so rare. I mean, because people, even non-Christians, had a basic moral standard that they kept somewhat. But now everybody lies. I mean, it's just the lying. I'm, You know, when you look at the, the theft that goes on, the people that, that shoplift, it's just, it's gone crazy in our culture you know just people don't think as they harden their hearts as they 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 sear their conscience more and more all these things that they do is just hostile to god and what it has all these expressions that are there in culture but if we hunger for the word of god we are defined by the word of god we're defined how we do it that if you walk out of the out of walmart's and you went and, and they gave you five dollars too much you turn around you walk back says i'd be stealing if i kept this you gave me five dollars too much because now we are being defined by the precepts of God. We are being owned by this God that says, You are to act like me as much as you are humanly possible through my grace. You are to be a people that's passionate in wanting to live out the Word of God. Not legalism, not just some list of do's and don'ts, but this whole desire to please Him, to bring joy to His heart. Because we want to, to know Him more and more and we want His heart to be filled with pleasure that we live to please Him. And what pleased Him? Obeying Him. And so God help me to live out Your Word in a way that brings pleasure to You. The Pharisees did not bring pleasure to God because it was all just legalistic mumbo-jumbo to them. But His disciples began to learn what it was to follow Him and to love Him. And that's what we're to do. We're to be a people that are holding to His precepts and yearning to love Jesus supremely. The greatest commandment should be on the forefront of our minds. It should be on the forefront of our prayers. God, help me to love you with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. How often are you praying for grace to love Him more? How much are you looking at your own life where you're not loving Him like you should and you say, God, I'm not loving you like I should. Help me to love you more. And when you see yourself not loving others like you should, you realize that your failure in loving others like you should is because you're failing to love Jesus like He should. The grace to love others like you should will come from loving Him like we should. And so, God, I'm holding your precepts. 1 Corinthians 13, God, help me to live it out towards others. The greatest commandment, God, let it be the passion of my life to bring joy to you in all that I do by loving you supremely above everything and everyone. Let me bring a conclusion here. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3. This is what the Lord says. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire... 
You shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God. Isn't that neat? This promise that has so much encouragement in it. It begins, this is what the Lord says, and ends with, I am the Lord that says this. And this is what I'll do for those who belong to me, those who are mine. Do not fear, I've redeemed you. You belong to me. I've redeemed you. And so we need to have faith through the struggles and pain of life. You may not be going through a single trial right now. Just wait. Okay, I'm not being prophetic, but it's just the reality of man. If you're not going through one now, it may be next week, it may be a week or a month or whatever, but they're going to be there, whether big or small, they're going to come. Many times it's all the small little ones that, that build up to be more crushing than sometimes the big ones that, that we, we show ourselves up and we realize our need of Christ. But one way or the other, we need to have this faith that He is a God that's going to be there. Why? Because I belong to Him. Now, if you don't really belong to Jesus, now that's a whole other story. Then you need to really come to Christ. You need to come to a true saving faith where you surrender your life to Him. But if you, if you belong to Him, then you can begin to understand these promises are for you. You can claim these promises. It's not arrogant to claim the promises of God when you belong to Him. He says right there, you are mine, okay? If you're mine, this is what I'm going to do. When you pass through the waters, I will protect you. They'll not overcome you. It may be your feet's not touching ground, but you're, you're going through the water and your head's above water. It may be like everything is just going crazy all around you, but you're still floating and He's still sustaining you. There'll be the time where your feet will touch ground. There'll be the time where you come out. But we have to be willing to trust Him through those floodwaters. We have to trust Him through the fire when we go through it. And yet it feels so hot. It feels like everything in us is just going to burn up. How can I endure this? Yet the promise is there. It says, I will be with you. When you pass through the fire, I will walk with you. I don't know how many of you have either read or listened to the series by C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. My favorite one is The Horse and His Boy. I just love that story. And, uh, you know, it's just there's times I'm just in tears with Aslan, which is the image of Christ. And here's this boy that is really doesn't understand he's a, a prince, you know, from Arkenland. And here he is traveling. I won't go through the whole story. But he's traveling along and it's dark and it's foggy and he can't do anything. And Aslan comes up alongside him, begins to talk and. And, uh, you know, he's the boy's moaning and groaning over what a rough life. Oh, and Aslan just so nice. Well, tell me all about it, you know. And, and, but the whole time, they're just, he didn't realize it until he went back. But he's on this little itty-bitty cliff. And one wrong move, he would have been over the side the whole way. Aslan, the image of Christ, is just there walking him right through. The danger was terrible by himself. He would have fallen. But with Jesus... There was safety through it all. There's a path of spiritual maturity that the Lord wants to take us on. And it's wonderfully revealed, and I'm just going to share this very quickly and then close. It's revealed in the book of Song of Solomon. And Song of Solomon is, you could think of it as a play. And the play has a few actors in it. The, the main actors is going to be the lover, which is, uh, which is Jesus, and the beloved, which is the church. And the third one is the friends, which is going to be the world. And it's a dialogue that goes on. And, you know, you have to try and stop and understand who's speaking and, and everything. But, you know, here's this, the beloved, the, the image of the church, the Christian that is to be, to be married to Jesus. And, you know, the time's coming where that wedding's going to take place. And what does she say? She says in, in chapter 2, verse 16, it says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. It's kind of like, well, we're equal here. You know, I'm his, you're mine. You know, I mean, isn't this great? We're just getting along. And you fail to understand that the one who has espoused you is the creator God who needs nobody. He doesn't need you. But yet he tolerates us in this infantile place of Christianity where we think it's okay. It's, we're kind of just equals there. And, and then there's some maturing that goes on that comes to various sufferings that happen and also the aspect of the wooing of, of, of the lover, the wooing of Jesus and and then in chapter 6, she makes this declaration in verse 3. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. 
Well, she switched it up, okay? Well, Jesus is a little bit more important, but man, I'm still high up here on the, on the, on the totem pole type of thing. You know, I still got this big position. I'm important. But it's still self. Self is still so much a part of it. Still looking at my own wants and desires. Not as bad when salvation first came into our heart, but, but not to what God would want us to be. You see, so many times Christians never grow, never mature in their love for God. So it's still all about me. It's still about my wants, my desires. And they fail to understand the maturity. And this is in the third one. And this is in chapter 7, verse 10. She finally, through all the situations that go on, she finally comes to the place and says, I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. No more about me, my wants, or anything else. I belong to him and and I know that his desire for me is good and right and I just surrender. Just surrender. He's the pride. He's the pride. Father, we come before you now in the precious name of Jesus. What does it mean that you're coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle? It means, Lord, you've got to grow us up. You've got to mature us. You've got to make us a people that can stand whatever we may face, whether it is a sensual culture that is, is getting more and more perverted day by day. And I, can't, I, I am just overwhelmed with where this world, our nation is going and in immorality and wickedness, O oh God. Or Lord, if it were to take a turn and go into severe persecution. Lord, you're coming back for a beautiful bride. Lord, you want us to be a people that are not afraid to say, I am yours, save me. Because I keep your precepts. Because I'm striving to obey you in all things. Because I'm striving to do what pleases you. God, I'm just asking for this cry to rise up in us, this beautiful little prayer that's right here that can be such a powerful thing in our life if we begin to just cry it out. And Lord, I know that many times, and especially I've prayed this myself in times of struggle and pain where I have just cried out, God, I am yours. Save me from this. Lord, you have always been faithful in the midst of it. When I cried out, save me, that you were there to be Savior in whatever dimension that meant for that situation, Lord. You have always, always been there. Always. You have never failed to be who you have promised to be to those who belong to you, O God. Lord, we just thank you for these precious promises. And Lord, the promises that you bring us into covenant because you paid the purchase price of salvation so we could be cleansed, so we could be temples of yours that you could live inside of And as a result of the purity that you bring through your blood, you enter into covenant with us. God, what a wonderful Savior that you are, that you would make that covenant with us. And may we be a people that are striving with all that's within us to live lives that are to your joy, that bring pleasure to you in all we say and do in our marriages and our relationships with one another, dear God. Please, Lord. We're asking that you would be to us our Savior in a personal way, in the personal needs in our life, in these areas where our characters are not what have not been conquered and purified or sanctified like they should be, O oh God. We invite you into these areas to be our Savior because we belong to you, O oh God, and you desire us to be a bride that is beautiful and spotless without blemish, O oh God. And that's who you're coming back for. And may we be a people that are not ashamed because we are ready for your coming. And when you sound that trumpet, Lord, that we are taken up to be with you forever, O God. May our hearts pant for that. May our hearts yearn for that, O God. Longing for that day where these bodies will know their final redemption. Our souls have been redeemed, O God. But Lord, you paid the price for our bodies to be redeemed that one day we'd have a new body a spiritual body that can be in your presence forever and ever and ever, O God. Lord, may you set a fire in our hearts of just longing to live out your precepts because we know we are yours and we are wanting your salvation to be fuller and richer and more evident and powerful in our lives, O God, that others can see what salvation really is, that we are unashamed to go to the world and say, you want to see a true Christian? Then look at my life. 
God, not in arrogance, O God, but in the testimony of what you have done and are doing in our lives, O God, because we are yours and that mark of character is upon us, Lord. Jesus, we ask for this work and even deeper than what I could say or what I could preach, O God, I'm asking for these truths. Lord, to be dealt with in the hearts and minds of each of us this day and in the week to come, Lord God, that it would be, be thought upon and meditated upon and that they would brood over it in their own hearts and, and strive to understand what does this mean for me? How am I to lift this out? What does it mean for me to cry out, save me, O God, and that people would begin to cry out like never before for the active work of your saving grace, working in their life and sanctifying them. God, may this be a work that becomes powerful and pivotal in many lives here. In the precious and wonderful name of Jesus, Lord.